Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, God draws the first picture of Himself in history. When God speaks about himself, he speaks about himself for a number of reasons, but primarily he's trying to give us an insight into his nature, into his character, into his MO, his modus operandi, the way he works, the way he rolls, the way he rides, what God is like. So it is smart for us to pay very close attention, especially to the early pictures that God draws of himself in Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, you'll see right there in the beginning, the Bible says, in the beginning there was God. Before anything, before everything, there was God. The king of creation, the boss of this universe, there was God. And surrounding God was but empty space. The Bible says that the earth was empty and formless. There was total and utter darkness. The Spirit of God would hover over that emptiness. And into that emptiness, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, that God would speak. And into that emptiness came forth light and came forth life. In the beginning... There was empty space and into that empty space, God spoke and lights were turned on and life burst forth. Come on, in the beginning, there was space, God spoke and He filled it with beautiful things. He did it in the start and He's been doing it ever since. Come on, I love this picture. I love this image of a creator God of a God who sees empty space and knows just what to do with it. Into the empty space, He speaks and, and, and life springs forth and, and hope arises and, and day is dawn. In the beginning, there was space. God spoke and that space was filled with beauty. He did it in the start. He's been doing it ever since. And you should smile a little bit because that's really good news. Because that means that this morning is so much more than just another 10 a.m. service. It's more than just another building um, that's thrown its doors open with a few chairs set up to sing a few fast songs and a few slow songs and listen to a priestly pep talk, drink some coffee and then go home. No, this is so much more than just a, a box to check off your Christian to-do list throughout the course of a week. No, what's happening this morning is so much more. It's so much richer. It's actually space that we are creating for God to speak and to do beautiful things. In the beginning, He did it. He's been doing it ever since and He doesn't want to stop now. In the middle of our chaotic weeks, in the midst of our dramatic lives, what we're doing here this morning is doing so much more than just some Jesus karaoke and going through the holy motions. No, we are taking time to create space for God to speak and to do something beautiful. He wants the lights to get switched on in our dark lives. He wants life to burst forth in even the most dead of places in our beings. He wants hope to rise in the most helpless environments. That is what we do here this morning. We're just creating space 
Smile, this is really good news. Because this is a reminder and a declaration to us here at Victory Church that that's what this church is all about. By His grace and for His glory, for many years to come, this church was meant to be in the great city of Adelaide and in this great nation of Australia, a space where God would speak and beautiful things would happen. This isn't just another church option on the church landscape here in South Australia. This is just not another religious institution squashing the corner of this community. No, Victory Church, by God's grace and for His glory, for many years to come, will be the space where God speaks and beautiful things will happen where the lost will be found, where the hurting will be healed, where the broken will be mended. Come on, where hope will rise, where the prodigals will come home. This was meant to be the kind of space that God spoke into and beautiful things would happen. In the beginning, there was space. God spoke and He filled it with beauty. He did it in the start. He's been doing it ever since. That is why Victory Church was launched in 1994. That's the reason why the Holy Spirit has sustained this house and its family for the last however many years. Sorry, my mathematics is failing me right now, which is kind of strange being Chinese. I'm usually really good with my numbers. And and that's the reason for many years to come and for many more anniversaries in which you will celebrate you'll be able to tell the story of how God time and time and time again in the lives of precious and beautiful people loved by God, they experience into their emptiness and into their space, the voice and the heart and the will of God that brings about, come on, beautiful things. In the beginning, there was space, God spoke and he filled it with beauty. But I've been pondering and uh, wondering over the last couple of months, this question. Do you think there are different kinds of spaces? Do you think there are some kinds of spaces that are actually incredibly conducive to a God move? Are there some kinds of spaces where the supernatural is the norm? where signs and wonders aren't just rarities spoken about in the corridors um, of history, but it's actually stuff that you just see just week in, week out, day in, day out, meeting in, meeting out. Are there some kinds of spaces that that you can just walk into and you just know right away that something good is going to go down? You don't know what, but something good is going to happen because our God isn't good because he does good things. No, he's good because that's just who he is. Are there some kinds of spaces that are just marked by the marvelous and the miraculous and a mighty move of God? Are there some kinds of spaces that actually promote a work of God? And are there also other kinds of spaces that as crazy as it sounds, quell the work of God, prevent a move of the Spirit? I know that kind of, you know, it does our heads in a little bit, especially when we hold 
the truth of his omnipotence or his all-powerfulness and his sovereignty, his ability to have his way at all times. When we hold that truth in tension, but also think about this question, I wonder, is there some kind of environment Is there some kind of space, I suppose, within our thinking and our paradigm where where there are times where it just feels like God wants to do something, but people are just resistant to it. And because of this resistance, His holy hands are tied. Are there some kinds of spaces where God wants to see lost people found and hurting people helped and broken people healed, but for some reason, because of forces and factors within that environment, people leave the doors the same way they come in? Are there spaces that actually quell and prevent a God move? Because in the last few years as I've traveled, I have to be honest with you, I've observed different kinds of spaces. As I've flown into different countries or stepped into different cities or walked into different churches, even sat in chairs in different meetings, I've experienced firsthand this incredible sense of different kinds of spaces. There are some churches, some meetings that you roll into and right away, you know that something is gonna happen. There's like a Holy Ghost electricity in the air. This is a sense that something good is going to happen that week, that someone needing an answer is going to walk away with that answer, that someone needing a breakthrough is going to testify to a breakthrough. You know that a miracle is going to unfold in the next 90 or so minutes. There are some times where you find yourself in the midst of a meeting. You just know that God is in, in the most beautiful way, in that space and He's moving and He's grooving and He's going to have His way. By the end of that meeting, you just know there are some kinds of environments where stuff is going to happen. And transversely, on the other side of the page, there are also times where you roll into a meeting, where you step into a city and right away you just feel a resistance in the air. There's a heaviness in that environment and it's not a Shekinah glory kind of good heaviness of His presence. No, there's a heaviness. It's more like a spirit of apathy or familiarity, an attitude where people are kind of just just presenting this front that says, I have been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, it's shrunk in the wash. I'm not really expecting that much. They're singing the same songs, they're hearing the same talks, they're all bowing before the same theological presuppositions, but there is something just different about that environment. It's like the lights are on, but no one's really home. And the preacher may rant, the preacher may rave, the preacher may spit, the preacher may spit, but just nothing actually happens. And people go the same way they came. If you look really closely at these environments, you will see spiritual tumbleweed blowing through the streets. There are some kinds of environments where it really feels like We're just playing a bunch of games, singing a bunch of songs, and nothing's going to happen. I've seen it with my own eyes. They're small, but they're really strong. (laughs) Different kinds of spaces. I think the teachings of Jesus would suggest there are different kinds of spaces, different kinds of environments. One of Jesus' most famous sermons that that he preached is found in Mark chapter four. They call it the parable of the sower or basically Jesus uses 
a farmer or an agricultural analogy to try to get across a point. And Jesus begins his story by saying, hey, there was a farmer and he was sowing seed. And this seed, as we will later find out, signifies the kingdom of God, the work of God, the heart of God, the will of God, the might of God, the strength of God, the desire of God. This farmer is sowing seed, but this seed falls on different environments, on different parts of the ground, on different kinds of spaces. And depending on the space that this seed falls on, so the kingdom will actually grow and go forward or actually just never take. Jesus says some of this seed falls on some ground that's really hard and rocky. And it just never ever you know, kind of you know, goes into the soil and grows up. It just gets you know, just picked away. It's just, it never actually turns into a sapling or a plant. It always just remains seed. Nothing happens. There's another kind of environment where the seed drops into and right away it takes root and it starts to grow. But because the soil kind of is pretty shallow, it can't handle the heat of the sun and it dies and fades as quickly as it rises and flies. So nothing really comes of that either. Yet there is another kind of space, another kind of environment where the seed drops into it and it takes root and it starts to grow really, really quickly. But the problem is there are other forces and factors in that same environment, thorns and weeds and bushes that would actually crowd out the young sapling's capacity to grow up into what it was meant to be. And that too ends that growth process. But yet there's a fourth kind of environment. There's a fourth kind of soil. There's a fourth kind of space, if you will, where the seed drops into it and it brings about a return. And it's not just like a really good return. It's not just a bumper crop. This is a supernatural return. 60, 30, 60, come on, 100 fold. There is a kind of environment where the kingdom of God just bursts forth and beautiful things happen. You gotta understand 2000 years ago in a primarily agricultural society, most of the people sitting there in that original audience would have jumped to the logical conclusion. Hey, what Jesus is talking to us about is to make sure that our lives, that our hearts, that our families, that our church is always kind of like that fourth space where the seed can drop into it. Come on, and we can see so much more than just a bumper crop. I wanna see a supernatural crop. I wanna see 30, 60, 100 fold return. Everyone would have thought that 2000 years ago. I think Jesus would suggest through his teaching, there are different kinds of spaces. I think the life and the ministry of Jesus suggests there are different kinds of environments, different kinds of spaces. I was reflecting on this question, this question about different spaces a couple of months ago and, and I was just doing my, my, my morning Bible study, my daily Bible reading. I follow this Bible reading plan. It kind of took me to Mark chapter five and Mark chapter six and I'm just reading these two, two chapters back to back and something becomes really apparent to me. Mark chapter five and Mark chapter six are just stories about two different kinds of spaces. Let me begin with Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six is Jesus rolling into his hometown called Nazareth. Jesus had been on the road for a while. He was on a roll. He was preaching, he was teaching. His earthly ministry had begun. The sick were being healed. There were some dead people rising to life again. There, there, there was some brokenness um, being exposed, but, then being, but, but that person was being helped through that entire process. It was incredible. Jesus was now bringing the kingdom to earth and he went home with a desire to keep that role going. 
So the Bible says he rolls into his hometown of Nazareth and he waits around a couple of days until the Sabbath to go down to the synagogue to begin to preach and teach because that was his custom. And on that Sabbath day, he rolls into the synagogue. He clears his celestial throat and he starts to preach and everyone is blown away. Who is this Jesus guy? Man, he's a good speaker. What insight, what wisdom, what authority. I love this dude. Where has he been all of our life? Everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with wonder. And then something happened in Nazareth. People began to recognize him. The whisper started to break out amongst the crowd. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 dude, dude, dude. I've seen this guy somewhere before. Wait, wait, no, no, let me. Uh, Jesus, his name's Jesus. Like, that's right. His dad is Joe the carpenter. Yeah, yeah, Jesus did an apprenticeship with Joe. This dude built my pergola in my backyard. I know this guy. You remember Jesus? He went to high school with him. Gee, gee, that's Jesus. Remember him? Like it was fun. Everyone, remember, remember that time that he turned everyone's like kind of, you know, water into, we, everyone loved him at their party. You know what I'm saying? Because like, it, we know Jesus. And then someone else would pipe up and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just Jesus. He's a hometown kid. His brothers and his sisters are amongst us right now. And someone else would pipe up and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. His mother Mary is sitting in the corner this very moment. Hey, he ain't no radical rabbi. He ain't no special world famous teacher. This cat's just Jesus, man. We know this guy. He's just a carpenter. He's a tradie trying to be like a teacher. This guy's really got nothing to offer us. And then something spectacular and horrifying unfolds. Jesus in the midst of this environment, in the midst of this apathy, in the midst of this familiarity, in the midst of this pride, looks at them and then in turn has his hands bound. And then one of the strangest verses in all of the Bible is penned. The Bible says that Jesus right there in Nazareth couldn't do any miracles there except for lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. You can just imagine this story being recounted by Peter as he was dictating to young Mark as he was writing this gospel. And Peter was going, it's like Jesus just wanted to take off. Like every single time we'd rolled into a different town. But as soon as he was going to take off, people recognized who he was. And, and instead of being able to put his foot down to the accelerator, it could only blip, blip, blip. And then it splattered out. Nothing actually happened. Jesus couldn't do any miracles there. You've got, you got to get your mind around that. This is Jesus. His hands flung stars into space. This, his hands, the Bible tells us. In Colossians chapter one, he's the firstborn over all creation through whom everything was made, for whom everything was created, in whom everything is held together. He literally has got the whole world in his hands, but these same hands were tied. Not because they had lost one iota of power, no, but because since the beginning of time, God has chosen to bring about His glory and to enact His plan through a partnership between the Creator and the created. And because the created didn't want to have a bar of what the Creator wanted to do, the Creator said, cool. You wanted help, you wanted healing, you wanted hope. You, you could have had it, but because you don't want it, I can't force it upon you. And because of their unbelief, Jesus' holy hands were tied and he couldn't do 
any miracles there. That part of Mark chapter 6 is Jesus just reflecting to his crew. Man, I'm pretty blown away by how they really don't want to believe. He was amazed at their unbelief. Which was so different from a couple of days before and a couple of miles up the road. Because Mark chapter 5 tells a different story. Mark chapter 5 begins with Jesus wake up in the morning and rolling into a, uh, a region called the Gerasenes. And in the Gerasenes, um, there was a man who was famous around town, a wild man, a crazy man. It looked like he had 6,000 demons inside of him because he had 6,000 demons inside of him. And, and this crazy man jumps out of the woods and, 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 and uh, confronts Jesus. And, and this, this man was so tormented. His life was marked by such turmoil and because Jesus' intention was not for your life to be marked by torment or turmoil, he looks at this man and immediately he brings a sense of peace. The demons inside of this man begin to speak to Jesus as they humble themselves before Jesus because even the demons of hell understand who's the boss and these demons go to Jesus. All right, we'll leave Legion alone from now on. But if you could just do us a favor and cast us into those pigs grazing on the side of that hill over there, we'd be eternally indebted to you. Could you just let us go into these filthy animals? And Jesus, Wayne, to set people free from their turmoil and their torment, lets these pigs run in, unless these demons run into the pigs. The pigs go wild and crazy and they run down the hill into the ocean. They all drown, they all die, destroying the bacon industry for the next 10 years. And everyone loses their mind there in the Gerasenes because they like their bacon. So they get angry and they start chasing Jesus. Jesus and his crew hot-footed out of town. They jump into a boat and they row to the other side of the boat. And the Bible says they end up in a region called Capernaum. And he, he steps off the boat and already at the seashore, there is a throng of humanity. There is a multitude. There is a countless crowd already gathered by the seashore. They didn't wait till 10 minutes into the service. They were ready to go right there when Jesus stepped off the boat. Well, that one kind of struck a nerve, didn't it? And so he, he, he kind of got off the boat and right away people were like all wanting a, a touch of Jesus, a word from Jesus, some, some help from Jesus. And, and the Bible tells us in Mark chapter five, through the crowd comes a man named Jairus. And Jairus was a synagogue ruler. That meant that he ruled in the synagogue. That's the reason he was called a synagogue ruler. And he Push through the crowd, and the Bible says in Mark chapter 5 that he falls at Jesus' feet. I could imagine him telling Jesus, Hey, you know, I'm really, really sorry because I work for the synagogue, and I know that right now because we are the keepers of the, the rules and the regulations and all things religious. And because you're a bit of a troublemaker right now, I, I know that we, the synagogue, have been giving you a really, really hard time, but hey, Jesus. I've got a really, really big issue. My daughter, she's really, really not well and I've heard stories about you and we've been trying everything within our own strength. I've been offering offerings and I've been trying to clean everything up in our, in our, in our household and our bloodline, but for some reason things just aren't being made right and, and, and I just know that maybe you can make a difference. So if you would come with me to my house and lay hands on my daughter, I just got a gut feeling that I just know that she'll be made well. And because Jesus loves both the broken rebel 
and the arrogant religious person the same. Jesus looks at him and has his heart filled with compassion and says, hey, it's all good. Let's go together. I'll go see your daughter today. They begin to walk across town. In the meantime, the Bible says in Mark chapter five, there was a woman in Capernaum who had the issue of blood. She was ceremonially unclean, but this was a perpetual infirmity. It's something that she had wrestled with more than a decade, 12 years in fact. And the Bible makes it clear in Mark chapter five that she had spent every cent that she had trying to get better. But instead of getting better, she just grew worse. But she heard that Jesus was in town. The the miracle worker, the radical rabbi, the one who has power and authority like no one has ever seen before. And she thought to herself, if I can just get to him and maybe just touch his cloak, I just know that I will be made well. But there was a problem. She wasn't allowed out of the house because she was ceremonially unclean. She was meant to be set apart from society and for her to come out into public and to have any kind of interaction with anybody would make them ceremonially unclean as well. And for her to do that on purpose could bring about for her the death penalty. But she thought to herself, I'm living here in the midst of death anyway. What worse could humanity do to me? I need to go after this Jesus guy. So she throws open the door and steps into the sunshine. She doesn't see the sun very often. She's not allowed out in public much. And she sees the crowd and they're all kind of running down the hill. And so she thinks to herself, I need to find Jesus. So maybe I'll just follow the crowd because I, I, I heard that he's just down by the seashore and he's on his way to Jairus's house. I can hear people talking about this right now. And I saw a whole bunch of my kind of girlfriends post like Instagram selfies of themselves with Jesus this morning by the beach, me and Jesus selfie. And so I can, all right, I know where Jesus is. I need to get down to him. So she begins to run with the crowd trying to get down to Jesus. Oh, the problem compounded by the time she gets down to Jesus, there's already already a crowd squashed in around him. There isn't a square inch in which she could fit. But she thought to herself, I've come so far. I'm not going to allow my miracle to just pass me by. I'm going to find my way through to Jesus. So she begins to, as the Bible says, push her way through the crowd. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. People would have recognized her. Hey, oh, isn't that the unclean woman? Oh, isn't that the filthy lady? But she wouldn't even allow the voices of the crowd to hold her back from her healing. And eventually she gets to the front of that circle and Jesus is walking and with one brave lunge, she brushes his cloak. And the Bible says, immediately she felt healing fill her body. Just one touch and immediately, come on, you can see your situation turned upside down, right side up. Come on, your circumstance, find a resolution. Just one touch. And then Jesus stops and turns around and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Something happened. Power has just departed from me. Someone just got healed. The disciples are like going, oh, Jesus, I'm like, Kind of everyone's kind of squashed up around you, Jesus. There's a lot of people bumping up against you. How can you tell that somebody actually touched you? And Jesus says, no, no, no. I felt power leave from me because for God, healing is not just a random act poured upon people willy-nilly. 
It's a personal God understanding each and every single one of our personal issues and him, come on, making a personal decision to intervene. And so he felt, whoa, something happened. Someone got healed. Everyone starts looking around. Wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me. This woman, so brave, she stands forward and she goes, hey, it was me. I had this issue for so many years. I just thought to myself, if I just brushed like up against a cloak, even if I just touched your hem, I'd be made well. And Jesus looks at her and smiles and says, sweetheart, your faith has made you well. In the meantime, one of Jairus' servants breaks into the conversation and announces to everybody, hey guys, I'm really sorry, I've got some horrible news. No point bothering Jesus anymore. Hey Jairus, your daughter just passed away. Jairus, full of grief and a heart heavy with pain, turns to Jesus and says, hey, don't worry about it anymore. My daughter is gone. But Jesus would immediately say to him, hey, don't be afraid, just believe because Jesus understood like he wants you to understand that he's the alpha, he's the omega, he's the beginning, he's the end. It ain't over. It is never over until Jesus says it is. So he says, just just smile, dude, and believe. Let's keep on going. They went down to Jairus' house. The Bible says that already there was a large group of people out the front crying together. The morning had begun. I picture them to be women because women are beautiful and sympathetic. I, I just picture like, because when one girl has to go to the toilet, they've all got to go together. I kind of, I'm, I'm crying. I'm going to cry with you. So it's like a group of women all hanging around the front of this house and they're just like kind of consoling each other. And so Jesus pushes his way through the crowd, takes Jairus, the mum, and a couple of the boys into the room. And in the corner of the room lay there a dead little girl already wrapped up in funeral clothes. Now it was against Mosaic law to have any kind of interaction with a dead body, but you weren't meant to touch like, or deal with a demoniac and you definitely weren't meant to deal with a woman with the issue of blood. So Jesus had been breaking rules all day long. So he thought, why stop now? So he goes over to this little girl and speaks to her, Talitha Kawum, literally, little girl, get up. And she springs forth back to life because that's what the words of Jesus has the power to do. Even the most dead things in our life, come on, even the most dead dreams in our life, even the most dead hopes in our life, even the most dead relationships in our life, the most dead things still have to respond when Jesus speaks directly to it. So bang, she's up. And like a classic teenager, she goes, I'm hungry. So Jesus, not only just caring about our spiritual needs, but also our physical needs. He doesn't just want to heal us. He also wants to restore us and bring us back to fullness. He says, quick, get this girl something to eat. So the servants run around, try to find some food. I don't know, a Pop-Tart and a farmer's union. That's what I kind of imagine. Give this girl a Pop-Tart and some iced coffee. And so here she is nibbling on a Pop-Tart and sipping on an iced coffee in the corner of the room. And the Bible says at the end of Mark chapter 5, and everyone was filled with amazement. My goodness, what a difference. A couple of miles and a couple of days make. And how amazing would it be if Victory Church 
for many years to come, come on, in increasing measure, became more and more like that Mark chapter five kind of environment and how important is it is it, come on, for us to protect our hearts and to protect our families and to protect this church from ever becoming one of those Mark chapter six kind of places. Come on, is anyone with me here this morning? How important is it for us to understand the qualities or the elements that are found in Mark chapter 5. How important is it for us to foster these qualities and to furnish our spiritual home with these realities? And how important is it for us to maybe recognize how some of these elements that you see in Mark chapter 6 have crept in and how we have to eradicate them from our environment and protect our hearts from ever slipping into those modes. Come on. So that's what I'm going to do in my last five minutes and seven seconds with you. I just want to make a few really, really quick reflections on how Mark chapter 5 is different than Mark chapter 6. And then I'm, going to, I'm going to dare you. No, no, I'm going to double dog dare you. To week in, week out, meeting in, meeting out, interaction in, interaction out, season in, season out to make sure that this kind of space is always the kind of space that is conducive to a God move. Come on, that promotes help, that promotes hope, that promotes healing, that promotes the idea of lost people being found. And then as we, as we bravely together foster these qualities and furnish our spiritual homes with these realities, I believe that this church will time and time again Find people all together filled with amazement. If you're scribbling down notes, you can pull out your notebooks and your pens right now. If you have iPhones, iPods, iPads, pull them out. Thank the Lord Jesus for Steve Jobs. He is a gift from God. Samsung, Blackberry devices, put them away. You've been deceived. What do you see in Mark chapter five? The first thing I see there was a hunger and a desperation, am I right, in Mark chapter five, as opposed to a spirit of familiarity and apathy in Mark chapter six. Mark chapter five, what do you see? You see this woman with the issue of blood, knowing that her life could be at risk to go out, no, but she was so hungry to see what Jesus could do. She wouldn't allow cultural convention to hold her back, even the voices of the jeering crowd to hold her back from getting to Jesus. There was a hunger, come on, there was a desperation. You see, Jairus, you know, Jairus could have lost his job as a synagogue ruler. He would have at the very least been ridiculed by his peers for falling at the feet of Jesus. But there was such a hunger, there was such a desperation for Jesus, he cared not. And I challenge you, I don't just challenge you, I challenge myself consistently. As much as I do, as much as I see, as much as I experience to always make sure that my greatest hunger, my greatest thirst, my greatest desire, the thing I'm most desperate for is the power and the presence and the beauty of Almighty God. Come on, that's what I want more than anything else. And I would challenge you beyond the singing, beyond the talks, beyond the sound, beyond the lights, beyond the, the sermons and the productions and the conferences to make sure your greatest hunger, your greatest desire is the power and the presence. Come on, and the move of Jesus. Come on, if you're awake, would you just clap a little bit here this morning? Because in life, in general, you get what you hunger for. 
That's the reason Jesus says you are a blessed person. You're a lucky and fortunate person when you hunger and you thirst for righteousness because you get to be filled. Hunger for Jesus. Don't just go through the holy motions. Don't just get trapped into a cycle of religiosity. Things I must do every single week. And at the end of the week, I just press repeat. No, every single week, every time. Come on, you walk through the car park and in through these doors. May something hum deep within your soul. I don't know what's going to happen. I just know something good is going to happen. I don't know what I'm going to walk away praising God for. I just know I'm walking away today and I'm going to be praising God because I'm coming hungry not to just play church. I want to see Jesus Move in my church. I want to see him move. There was a hunger, there's a humility. Contrast that, juxtapose that to Mark chapter 6, where as soon as they recognized him, a spirit of familiarity raised up in that joint. Oh, we know this guy, been there, done that, bought the t shirt, shrunk in the wash. We have nothing basically to expect from this. That spirit of familiarity, which so easily, come on, creeps into our journey because we've seen amazing things before. We've experienced good things before. We've dreamt before and kind of had our you know, dreams quashed before. Why really? Be- no, we have to guard our hearts from that spirit of familiarity. You think you've seen it all? You ain't seen nothing yet. What else do you see there? In Mark chapter five, you see number two, there was humility as opposed to the pride you see in Mark chapter six. The Bible says that both Jairus and the woman ran towards Jesus and fell at his feet. As we posture ourselves correctly and recognize who he is and who we are, we create space for God to move. That's the reason the Bible says in James chapter four that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Or in other words, he says, you know, if you wanna do life by yourself, you are allowed to. If you wanna roll through life solo and basically smack away the hand of God trying to intervene and to help and to guide, you're allowed to. Why? Because you were made in his image and you are important enough to him that he will allow you to make a choice to say, you know what? No, thank you. And because he's the gentleman of heaven, he will not crash a party he's not invited into. Now, if you want to do your life like that, it'll be like pushing a heavy wheelbarrow up a very steep hill with like a flat tire, but you have the choice to do that. But when you humble yourself and actually say, hey, you know what, God, I can't, but you can. Come on, when you humble yourself and you recognize that humility is not about having a low self-esteem, it's having the right esteem of Almighty God. We start to open up the environment for God to move. That's the reason we praise and we worship at the start of a meeting, you know that? It's not just to kind of like get out your nervous energy before the preaching. It's not just because everyone likes to have a bit of a sink. No, we do this, why? Because we're, come on, we're posturing ourselves. We're not just looking for like, you know, my favorite powerhouse little songstress unit to kind of wow everyone with her voice and her soaring voice. No, no, we're doing this because we're trying to acknowledge, hey, it's all about Jesus, all about you, it's all about you. Why? Because when you posture yourselves correctly, come on, when you posture yourself, we create space for God to move. Don't get down on yourself when you basically chuck it in and says that I can't because the moment that you recognize that you can't, that's where grace begins. And that's when you start experiencing how much God can. 
There was humility in five. There was pride in six. If there's pride found in your heart, my goodness, when there's pride found in my heart, pray, pray, pray that Jesus would remove that with all due vigor because nothing will hinder a move of God like pride and nothing opens up the gateway of heaven like grace, like humility. Thirdly and lastly, really quickly, there was expectation. Come on, there was great expectation. There was this great expectation there in Mark chapter five. And I want to ask you, Victory Church, what do you expect? Seriously, what do you expect? I know this is a miracle right now. I know from 94 through to 2014, over the last 20 years, You've seen miracle after miracle after miracle, but I'm going to ask you right now. I'm not asking you what have you seen. I'm asking you what do you expect? I know there are some people here in this room who are sitting in the midst of something far beyond they ever like basically dare, hope or imagine for. And you're thinking to yourself, man, this is amazing as it is. Could I even hope and imagine for more? I want to ask you, what do you really expect? Because in Mark chapter five, there was very clear expectation. The Bible says that both of these people, Jairus said, I just knew Jesus. If you came to my house and lay hands on my daughter, she'd be made well. This woman with the issue of blood just thought to herself in her head. She didn't have to articulate it. She goes, I just know, I just know, I just know. If I touch his garment, even if I brush up against his hem, I'm going to be made well. There was expectation. What do you expect? Because there were no expectations in in Mark chapter six, we've heard it all before and no tradie carpenter guy is gonna show us anything that we haven't seen before. Dude, get off your pedestal. We don't wanna hear this message. This spirit of familiarity, this sense of I've heard it all before, rob them of their miracle. What do you expect? Because I wanna let you know that if you can expect it, if you can dream it, If you can dare it, I want to remind you, God has the power to do it. And He has an amazing way of topping it. That's the reason Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us that God can do, come on, immeasurably more than we would dare ask or imagine. Come on, He loves to take whatever we would dream and show how, you know what? When you find yourself lost in a God dream, that dream seems small the whole time. Come on. What do you expect? Tony, can I just take your kid, your, your church to Sunday school for 30 seconds? Uh, just 30 seconds. I'm gonna, I, need, I need to do it. I'm gonna dare you. How, how dare you not expect great things from this church? How dare you not expect God, come on, to do great things in this day? How dare you not expect God to bring about salvation in this house? How dare you not? expect God to bring restoration to our homes? How dare you not expect God to see this service filled and many more services filled? Come on, how dare you not believe that the gospel will be proclaimed? Come on, to the outer ends of this great city. of How dare you not in the light of what He's done, in the light of what He's doing? Come on, our God is good enough. Our God is strong enough. Our God is great enough. 
He's the one who could create the heavens and the earth in six days and still take a day off to watch AFL football. This is our God who can bring forth the nation of Israel through a pensioner and his barren wife. Come on, this is our God who can bring down Pharaoh and all of Egypt's army with nothing but a stick and a gust of wind. This is our God who can bring down the walls of Jericho with nothing but a song and a shout. This is our God who can bring down the giant Goliath with nothing but a sling and a stone. This is our God who can close the mouth of the lion, open the eyes of the blind, heal the sick, raise the dead, birth the church, save your crazy life. This is our God. And He's just as strong as He has ever been. How dare we not have great expectations. Don't allow your disappointment. Don't allow your doubt. Don't allow broken dreams to formulate or to frame your expectations. But the might, the magnificence and the magnitude of His love, let that inform your great expectations. I want my life always to be marked by profound hunger for God. I want my life to be marked by genuine humility as I stand before my loving but awesome King. And I want always my life to be marked by great expectations. I've seen a lot, but I know I still haven't seen anything yet. And maybe if you would do the same, you as a church would be filled with amazement too. God bless. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 